1: Well, in case you missed it, the televised debate of the three B.C. political parties was last night. That's the only televised debate they're going to be doing, of course, coming up on Thursday. So tomorrow from 10 to 11 a.m. right here on 980 CKNW, you will hear the leaders debate, uh, one hour questions. And in fact, people have been sending me questions already to ask And you know what? Really appreciate that, because there will be a section where listener questions get put uh, to the leader of your choice. So send those to me, simmy at cknw.com, and I will, uh, you know, see if we can ask that one for you uh, on the air. That's tomorrow morning, 10 to 11. Now, in case you missed last night's debate, we thought, let's just go over some of the uh, events of what happened, okay? And it was relatively civil, as Gordon and I were just talking about there. So to start off, debate moderator, Shachi Curl, uh, led off the debate asking NDP leader John Horgan to address the criticism over the timing of the call for an election.
2: I grappled with the decision to call an election. I looked at the challenges that we're facing as British Columbians. We're in a pandemic. We will be in a pandemic next spring and likely next fall and beyond. I looked at the challenges British Columbians were facing. Our worlds have been turned upside down and I think the best course of action is to put the politics and the election behind us and focus on the needs of British Columbians. We have worked collaboratively, the Green Party and and my caucus, to do a whole bunch of very extraordinary things in a short period of time. But it's been three and a half years since British Columbians had their say, and I believe as we're going into the recovery phase and making sure that everyone's safe, we should ask British Columbians what they think and where they want to go. I believe it's the right time to do that so we can all be focused on British Columbians. Okay, so that's
1: NDP leader John Horgan there. Now, the Green Party has said that they want to explore the idea of a 4-day work week, and party leader Sonia Furstenau was asked if that would be a deal breaker for them to support another minority government.
3: To be clear, the promise isn't to implement a four-day work week. It is to work with stakeholders, with labor, with businesses, to incentivize and find ways to support businesses to create a more healthy work-life balance for them and their employees. We've seen examples of this in other countries, uh, in Japan, where Microsoft Japan went to a four-day work week and saw an increase in productivity and an increase in in worker health and happiness. We have to look at the world we're in right now and say, how can we have the healthiest, most thriving population possible? And we've had all of these increases in productivity and working from home, And yet we still adhere to this 100-year-old idea of working five days a week. If we can have more productivity, more revenue, better health outcomes, better mental health, better work-life balance, let's look at the ways to do that and work together with stakeholders, business and labour to bring those programs forward.
1: That is Sonia Versno from the Green Party talking about the four-day work week. And of course, uh, there were people who were waiting for BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson to address these sexist comments by BC Liberal candidate Jane Thornthwaite. Now, she apologized for making those about NDP candidate Bowen Ma. But Andrew Wilkinson had had a little trouble with the media the last couple of days because he hadn't made himself as available to answer questions about it. So here's what he had to say.
2: That very unfortunate event was a subject of a lot of controversy this weekend and I apologized on Sunday morning to Bowen Ma, the MLA involved, and Jane Thornthwaite has also apologized. I went out this morning in front of the media and also said that what happened was completely unacceptable, an exceptionally poor taste, and it was sexism with one female MLA commenting on another female MLA. We have to move into a new world where those kinds of things are not acceptable. I didn't speak up at the time because it was a roast for an 87-year-old old MLA who is retiring, but I think everyone in the call realized that it was totally inappropriate and it was really unacceptable. In retrospect, it would have been better if I went out on the call or immediately after the call and corrected the behavior of uh, Jane Thornthwaite, but we thought it's time to move forward. I've offered to speak directly with Bowen Ma, the MLA involved, and express my apologies to her directly for not intervening and stopping the comments of Ms. Thornthwaite.
1: Okay, so there's Andrew Wilkinson responding to that issue. This is, of course, from last night's uh, leaders debate, the only televised debate where you will see the three of them. Coming up tomorrow, though, is, as I mentioned, the radio debate. So same thing. We're going to be talking to them for an hour, asking questions. They will ask each other some questions like we saw last night. I thought that was really effective the way that was done. And so we will do that. But we will also have a chance for you to ask questions. And so you can send me your questions. I've been getting some really good ones. So we're kind of putting them in a big pile and we're sorting through them and we want to make sure that we address issues that aren't previously addressed in the questions and discussions that we are having in that debate.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, let's talk about real estate, shall we? It has been one of the surprises of the pandemic, the way the real estate numbers just keep seemed to going up. So the BC Real Estate Association has released their September report. Once again, we are looking at a record-setting number of home sales. So we thought, let's break this down. Joining us now is real estate market analyst Dane Idle to talk about uh, his read on what is going on out there. Uh, Dane, thanks so much for being here.
4: Hello, Simi. Great to be back with you.
1: Well, tell me about these numbers. How good are they?
4: Yeah, you know what's interesting? I mean, the, 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 the report that you're mentioning, um, it, by their own data, uh, March, April, and May was down 10,800 sales from historical 10-year averages, and then our most recent four months was up 8,800, but that still leaves you negative 2,000 compared to the, you know, seasonal historical 10-year averages, and what's odd about that, again, uh, to, the, to the report, they, they tout how great of a September sales month was for the detached market. However, there was only 1,325 completions. When you're missing out on 2,000 sales over the last few months, it it still is a a consequential number.
1: Right. But what is going on out there, do you think?
4: Yeah, what's actually happening is there's a ton of inventory coming to the market. Both the condo and the detached market hit their recent highs for new active listings to the market. And in the condo market, there was actually over 3,200 active brand new listings. Now, that's the highest total in the last 15 years. So the investment mentality in the condo market has really shifted. Um, there, there are a lot of investors looking to get out of Dodge and, 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 there are some sales that are starting to transpire. And more so in the detached market, there really was that rush to own a land or, or own detached property given, you know, the work from home movement mm-hmm. and, and of course, you know, the school uncertainty. We believe there was a lot of, of, of course, pent up demand and then forecasted demand that was actually expelled here in September as well. Given how important this school catchment year was, probably given historical norms, mm-hmm. uh, this year seem to be more important. And, I, and we do believe that was the big rush to see completions co- occur during September.
1: Okay. So then do you see this as continuing or you talked about pent up demand there? You said that a couple times, does that mean that demand has kind of worked its way through?
4: We believe so. Um, as, as we say that the inventory count is rising and these sales that are, that are record are, are of record are completed sales. So th- these aren't the accepted offers that actually occurred in September. These are sales from previous months that actually did complete in September. So they actually moved into their property and and found their new home and their new school catchment and all of the others. But with the rising inventory and with that need to sell, this did come as a relief to many sellers looking to get out of the market. There were properties that were on the uh, market multiple times over the last few years, and they did finally just achieve a sale in September. Now, granted, it was a sale price, but it wasn't nearly what they were looking for in previous listings. So, you know, the sellers do have to change their mindset from shooting for pie in the sky prices to offering what is realistic to the market values given today. And as we've said in the past uh, on on your show, this this would be an unusual market. And we did say that the the demand and the inventory would start to act unseasonal. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're really seeing here. We're seeing unusual activity given historical seasonal norms.
1: Okay, so then if you think that you know people who put their stuff on the market in the last six months or so were the people who really wanted to sell, is inventory, do you think, going to increase? Are more people thinking that, oh, geez, that house down the street sold like so quickly, I should put our place up for sale?
4: Absolutely. So that is the, the kind of common sentiment that will occur. And with real estate boards you know, touting that there are sales occurring, there is that need to sell that we, we, we do believe is prevalent there, and they're starting to see some relief. The unfortunate thing is... <laughs> We do believe that a lot of that demand has been expelled. So when they are hitting the market, they're not getting the offers that maybe they had expected with their realtors in conversations before listing. And, and we are starting to see a lot of owners have to chase the market down. And what's interesting is that during 2016, uh, there were seven months when sale prices were above where they were today. And that's above $1.7 million in the detached average sale price. So there was actually 9,500 sales that took place in 2016 above our average price today. During 2021, they will be up for their five-year mortgage renewal, and then that could spell some trouble if our forecast is correct, which of course we do believe that it is—that we will be going lower longer, and, and probably testing around a 1.4 million price during 2021.
1: Right, but those people who bought in 2016—that was at the height of the market.
4: Absolutely, and that's why we say there will be a, an, an increased need to sell. Now, not all of them will be into trouble but uh, there could be a healthy portion of those where either the bank will sell it or you could sell it yourself.
1: Yes. But don't you think also the lower interest rates will help them at this point because interest rates today are not what they were five years ago.
4: That's correct. Um, but the 400,000 expected loss probably wouldn't be mitigated by the interest rate decrease.
1: Okay. So you think definitely more inventory coming on the market than in 2021?
4: Absolutely. But across both sectors, uh, the detached, uh, to your point, there there are homeowners that have been you know weary about selling or, or You know, having a need to sell coming up, but they didn't necessarily want to take a loss. So now that you're starting to hear some positive headlines, they will actually put their property on the market and then they'll let the natural factors take how it actually does come out.
1: Okay, so so this kind of activity then, Dane, do you Mm -hmm. expect it to kind of continue over the next few months?
4: We really don't. We do expect the uh, inventory to continue to increase nominally. Now, of course, we are really going against seasonal averages here, so going into October, we don't usually see inventory rise. One oddity just about that, September currently is our high watermark for the detached property as far as active inventory. We're still below 5,000 active detached properties available on the market. Now, what's interesting about that, the last time we had a high watermark during September Mm -hmm. was 2009. Now, that was during our last recession. What's different, completely different this time going into our upcoming year is there is no Winter Olympics to save us. So there is no economic stamp that has to continue to go um as what we had during 2010 the construction couldn't stop um, and the economy kept going what we have this time is is government handouts and, and you know there's a fear continually going forward that a lot of households will lose at least one income so this doesn't really bode well and we do we are already seeing the increased need to sell in the condo market but it really is a tale of two markets right now and the detached is a little bit of a lagger and again with all those 2016 all right. high purchase prices, we do believe 2021 will see a, a a boom to the inventory.
1: All right, Dane, thank you very much.
4: No problem, Sam. You looking forward to the next
1: chat? Uh, me too. That's Dane Idle, founder of Idle Insights, a real estate analysis company, talking about the September real estate report, which showed great numbers. But as Dane pointed out, they don't expect that to continue. It has been a very unusual market. There was a house on my street that was for sale over Christmas, I guess, last year, and sold, and it was like a decent price when it sold last Christmas, like lower than what you would have seen in the last, you know, couple of years. And then about three weeks ago, suddenly went up for sale again. And so I checked it online and it was way, what I thought, way overpriced. Sold in a week. I don't know. Like sometimes you just can't tell, right, what's going on out there with the market. So we'll see.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, let's say good morning to Nikki Reitmeyer. Nikki, I have a question for you Mm mm-hmm shoot when somebody says to you i've got good news and bad news which one do you want first (laughs) which one do you say
5: that's a that's a great question
1: uh i usually say give me the bad news first hit me up front with the bad news exactly i always say that i wonder if there's something psychological about that like a glass half full glass half empty thing but i always say that too give me the bad news so i'm going to give you the bad news first okay Okay. <laughs> yeah, I know this is this is bad news for me and other people out there. It may not affect you as much Nikki, but WestJet has just made an announcement about more of the routes that they're going to be cutting back on. Oh,
2: and they are
1: okay. drastically cutting back on their flights to Atlantic Canada. And that is a tough one. I mean, we've got family in Newfoundland, right? You know, my husband's from Newfoundland. Uh, The WestJet flight to Newfoundland is one that we have taken many, many times over the years. That is being dramatically cut back. My son is in school in New Brunswick right now. Right. Uh, They're dramatically cutting back flights to the city that he is in. Um, There's a whole list of Atlantic Canadian cities that WestJet is going to cut back on a lot starting November 2nd.
5: Oh no! So are they saying that there's just not enough people on those airplanes? Yeah. that it's profitable for them anymore. Decreased Jeez, demand. Eh? Yeah, I found the, the only reason why I haven't been to Atlantic Canada, and I sincerely mean this because I would love oh, to go would. to Atlantic Canada. Yes. Oh, well, I mean, look, it looks beautiful, but the parties—I'm there for that as well. <laughs> it's because it's so darn expensive to fly there. It always I mean, has you look been. at an
1: airline ticket. Oh, it's outrageously you know, expensive for it's years. Cheaper to- to go to I was Europe going to, say them to go to Europe, yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. we, we that's say exactly that for you. years. We would have to go visit you know, our in-laws or family members or whatever in Newfoundland. And every year it was like it is more expensive for us to get on this plane and go somewhere in Canada, St. John's no less than it is for, you know, all four members of our family to go to Europe exactly. And that's always what's held me back from going. But now,
5: well, I guess this will kind of hold me back in the future as well. What a disappointment. I hope that at some point they plan on reinstating
1: some I hope of these so. flights. Yeah, geez, especially will that affect you for Christmas at all? Well, I mean, the price just came up. The price just went yeah. up. You know what I mean? So even getting him out, and I know Air Canada flies there, but just getting him in and out before was relatively easy because you had a, you know, lots of different flights to choose from. That's not going to be the case anymore. So I think this affects an awful lot of people.
5: Yeah, that's disappointing. And at least he's young, too, right? So you could fly him out by putting him on, you know, seven different layovers. You got to go to Toronto, to Winnipeg, to to Edmonton, to Calgary, to Prince George, and then to Vancouver, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'll hear about it. But that's exactly what I will end up doing. (laughs) So that's, I'm okay with that. Now, that was the bad news. Now you've got good news for us.
5: Yes. Now I'm going to hit us with some good news. The good news is, especially for BC Hydro customers, that power has been restored to 176,000 thousand customers who were affected by that big windstorm that we experienced yesterday. That was blustery all morning long and then a little bit into the afternoon as well. It almost seemed strange when suddenly the winds died back down again. Yeah. geez, it's it's calm. It's calm again. I that's mean, <laughs> I think a lot of people were left yeah, having to sweep all the leaves and everything off their patios, but the power has been restored to 176,000 people. The island was really hard hit, uh, Qualicum, Courtney, but then also towards the Fraser Valley as well. So Abbotsford and Chilliwack, they're still working on getting a few lights back on there as well. Okay,
1: good. Yeah, that would have been, that's only the first of our fall storms, though. There's still an awful yeah. lot of leaves that are still on the trees that need to come down. And I'm not sure
5: if I would enjoy this experience as much in adulthood as I did when I was a kid, but I used to love these fall windstorms in B.C. because the lights would go out, you know, mom and dad would be scrambling to find the candles and then oh, you'd those light were candles. The days. and you know, <laughs> It was so great, wasn't it? You'd sit in the living room together and, you know, you'd chat or you'd you know, play board games or whatever you would do, play cards. And it was kind of this really lovely bonding experience that you'd have with your family. I'm not sure how they enjoyed it
1: as as adults. (laughs) Can you imagine now though? Like without your phones? Oof. No, the anxiety (laughs) simmy. Yes, I know. It'd be a different situation. Back then it was like, oh, the only thing we're missing is the TV. Big deal. Yeah. Right? Now think of all the things that would be missing and it's a whole lot more stressful. Yeah, that's exactly
5: right. The only thing that was a real pain in the butt about it last time, like you said or before, was, of course, the no TV, but then also you had to go and reset all of the appliances oh, to yeah. reset the clock, right? Yeah,
1: <laughs> the true. microwave, the stove. And now they just do it automatically, so that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> that's a better thing. I love this story, by the way, that you were going to talk about, about this Richmond man who won some money.
5: Oh, yeah. So we're talking about sharing good news and the, the various ways that you can share some good news. So this fellow in Richmond, he checks his phone because he plays the lottery on his phone. And he found after checking the app that he had won 111 thousand dollars. I mean, he's not a multimillionaire, but that's That's a pretty pretty good chunk of change. It's great. I mean, hey, look, if you're just playing the lottery and suddenly you win a hundred grand, you're going to be a pretty happy guy. So he's thinking, how do I tell my significant other that I've won this big chunk of change? My wife is going to be thrilled. So what does he come up with? How does he surprise her with this good news? Well, he decides he's going to hide the winning check once he receives it inside a bucket of fried chicken.
1: (laughs) Now, I applaud the thought. I'm just hoping he put the check in plastic or something before he put
5: it in the bottom of the bucket of fried chicken. Can you imagine being the bank teller who suddenly gets
1: this greasy
5: check? Why, Why does this check smell like fried chicken? Now, he even said himself, he goes, the wife absolutely hates fried chicken. So he's like, I wanted to do something that would kind of mess with her a little bit. Like, no, honey, eat another piece. Eat another piece. <laughs> wait till you get to the bottom of the bucket. Have another one. I guess by the time, you know, she got to the bottom of the bucket, finally,
1: she was probably ready to kill him, but instead found out that there was a check for $100,000. Not so much when you see that. All right, Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Simmy.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: I mean, let's face it, West Vancouver isn't exactly known as a bastion of change. I was surprised to find out they don't even have a brewery there, which has been so successful for so many communities, including right next door in North Vancouver. But, sounds like the winds of change are moving in. The Ambleside Dundere Business Improvement Association has sent a survey around the community because they want to talk about their local area plan. They're talking about bringing in things like breweries, hotels maybe, more shopping, and they asked residents what they thought and what they want the neighbourhood to look like. Now, normally you would think, oof, that'd be a bit of a problem, right? But let's find out about those responses they got. Shannon Walker joins us now, chair of the Ambleside Dunderave BIA. Shannon, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Simi. So you've sent this survey out to residents. Tell me about the response that you've gotten back.
6: Well, to date, the response has been overwhelmingly positive. I think that uh, even though West Vancouver is very slow to change and to uh, revitalize, I think our residents are really right now wanting to see some revitalization and some new businesses coming into our community. Um, You know, you spoke about the brewery. We don't have a brewery. We don't have a distillery. We don't have a boutique hotel. We don't have a small ferry service. We don't have a really diverse retailer base. And we're missing that sort of middle demographic, sort of the 19 to 35 year olds. They're all leaving West Vancouver to go to Lower Longestown or go to Kitts. And uh, while we don't want to be Laura Longdale, that's really unique and that's really special. We can still be a really interesting experience for our residents and for tourists once we start to really revitalize the neighbourhood.
1: Now, were you surprised by the fact that when you sent this survey out, you got back an awful lot of responses from people saying, yes, let's do it all?
6: It, we we were surprised we were actually a little bit fearful when we when we uh, initiated this <laughs> because west vancouver is known to be the big naysayers. right? and uh and again it's it's got to be thoughtful change it's got to be slow change it is west vancouver and it's not going to be yale town but at the same time uh you know people especially i think during this covid time and we've all had to stay home they really want to stay home in their community, but they want to have a great experience and have some diversity of retail, of services. Um, Even we're finding, you know, people, uh, because of the COVID experience, uh, maybe aren't wanting to work downtown. And so we need more commercial office space for some of those smaller businesses that want to open up closer to home.
1: You even asked about the possibility or whether people would support a little kind of passenger ferry service to and from downtown.
6: And that's been overwhelmingly overwhelmingly positive as well. Um, I was actually on council in 2008 to 2011, and we did a test ferry service. And unfortunately, at the time, um, you know, they launched the pilot in November. So it's not the best time of the year to right. launch a ferry service. And, and we do have to uh, increase the... Uh, the depth of the pier. So the pier at 14th Street has to go out farther so that the high tides don't affect the ferry service. But when we did the pilot in 2008, it only took 11 minutes to get downtown to the government dock. So it's a great way to transport people over town back to West Vancouver. And even, I mean, in a big sky uh, kind of a situation, we're even thinking, you know, if we could get the little ferry service over to Kitsilano or to UBC to help our North Shore students more easily get to UBC, it would be ideal.
1: And do people realize that also brings people to West Vancouver?
6: Yes. And, <laughs> <laughs> and that's going to have to be a bit of an education process, yes. because it's not bad to have people come to West Vancouver. Uh, certainly, our retailers and our businesses would welcome more visitors to the neighborhood. Uh, but again, it's a matter of ensuring that the community feels that it's uh, positive to have more people come and visit us here. Right.
1: I'm fascinated by this, Shannon, I guess, and I'm teasing because I remember the debate over the beeline bus that they wanted mm-hmm. to run over there. And boy, were people ever opposed to that. And it just sounds like things have changed.
6: I think that the beeline really activated a lot of people in our community and uh, on a number of different levels. The one thing with West Vancouver is um, a beeline Um, is, you know, we want more transportation. We want more opportunities for people to move within our different communities in Metro Vancouver. However, uh, in West Vancouver, we need more businesses to have people move to. And one of the problems with uh, our current situation is we don't have a lot of vibrant businesses. We have long-term retailers who have struggled, who've made the commitment to stay in West Vancouver, but we need as a, as leadership in the community Mm -hmm. from both mayor and council and and city staff to really encourage diversity and to encourage, we have to figure out ways to encourage our landlords to, uh, you know, Welcome new businesses and figure out ways to get more, you know, um, diverse businesses into into West Vancouver. And so there's got to be a strategy uh, with the local area plan to do that. And so that is one of our it's definitely one of our challenges. But the B line, I think, has really uh, brought some awareness to the community about what we need to have a more sustainable community.
1: Well, keep at it, Shannon. Thanks so much for your time. Oh, thanks so much, Simi. Take care. You too. That Shannon Walker, chair of the Ambleside Dundere BIA. Yeah, they're talking some major change in West Vancouver. And overwhelmingly, people have told them they want to see that all that stuff actually happen.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
6: Is there a place for private, for-profit care in the care of our seniors? It was the
1: first question of the night from debate moderator, Shachi Curl, as you just heard there, what about senior care? What about our seniors? That is the community that has been hardest hit by COVID-19. And that's where a lot of attention is being paid and will continue to be paid over the next few years. So joining us now to talk about the different parties and their positions on the subject, we're joined by the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association, Terry Lake. Terry, thanks for joining us.
7: Good morning, Simi. Good to be with you.
1: Well, are you pleased with the level of attention that this issue has been getting?
7: Absolutely. Uh, You know, I think um, COVID-19 and the impact on seniors has focused people on seniors care, which is always a good thing because there have been, you know, concerns that have been raised for years, particularly around uh, health human resources and the need to have more people coming into, uh, into the sector to support seniors in care.
1: Right, because for the first time, it seems like we're seeing some decently comprehensive plans, right, from all three parties in their campaign platforms.
7: Absolutely. Um, Both the NDP and the BC Liberals have extensive uh, platform commitments to seniors care. I would say the the Green Party is uh, lacking a little bit there and seems to be focused on, uh, you know, getting rid of uh, private, uh, for-profit seniors care. and, And, you know, I would argue there's very little evidence to support that, although I did think that uh, Sonia backed away a little bit from that last night and said you know they would be transitioning over time because um, you know the mix that we have in BC has, has proven. Uh, to be um, a good mix, and uh, by all accounts, including the Canadian Medical Association, has dealt very well with the COVID-19 impact.
1: All right, well, let's run through some of the provinces there, you, or the platforms there. You mentioned the Green Party. Uh, if we go to the NDP platform, they're talking about a silver alert system. They're talking about increasing public funding for home care and enforcing care standards in private homes. How do you think that that would work? Is that something that is necessary?
7: It's necessary no matter what the ownership model is. We need to ensure that there's transparency, that there's accountability no matter if we're dealing with the health authority run uh, uh, assisted living and long-term care or whether it's not-for-profit or or for-profit. It's critical that particularly where public dollars are used to support seniors in care that uh, the money go to to care and uh, that we have uh, a a transparent, um, accountable system in place and Uh, You know, they've been working towards that. I mean, back in the former government, uh, certainly there were mechanisms in place that have been improved and uh, will continue to be improved.
1: Let's talk about the BC Liberal platform then that also addresses this. They're talking about a new tax credit of up to $7,000 a year for seniors to remain in their homes, but also a five-year, $1 billion long-term care home plan to upgrade some of those long-term care homes and assisted living residences. How badly is that money needed?
7: Well, both the NDP and the BC Liberals have committed uh, sizable amounts to replacement of the older facilities. And these are mostly in health authority-owned and operated facilities where we see uh, more uh, frequent uh, use of multi-bed rooms. And we know that these rooms are, first of all, they're You privacy, but it's very difficult uh, to have the level of cleaning needed uh, to ensure that we don't have spread of infectious diseases. So that would go a long way to replacing the old stock, but neither of the plans really looks forward to the long-term needs and the the additional beds that we're going to need as our population ages. So a little disappointed that uh, none of the parties have really talked about looking at how many more beds we're going to need over the next 5, 10, 15 years
1: how many beds are we going to need?
7: Well, the population uh, in BC that is over 65 now outpaces uh, those under 16. And uh, over the next uh, five to 10 years, we're going to need uh, tens of thousands of new long-term care spaces. And, And perhaps that's A mix of assisted living and long-term care, which is probably why we need to look at, you know, have a comprehensive look at seniors' care and decide what the optimum model is and where to best put resources.
1: Now, given the impact of COVID nineteen in this particular sector, do you think that some of the changes in long-term care are here to stay?
7: Yes, I think so. Uh, You know, the single-site order has uh, certainly helped, although it has created some pressures uh, for not just uh, private operators, but for health authorities as well, because a casual pool of employees... Uh, some people only want to work part-time and a casual pool helps to replace uh, people that are off sick uh, so the overtime costs in uh, the sector have gone through the roof and that is certainly uh, a real cost for, for health authorities and for uh, private providers whether they're not-for-profit or for-profit uh, but certainly uh, increasing wages with the uh, wage leveling uh, you know, is something we need to do but even more than that we need to uh, bring people into the sector to make this an attractive career for people uh, so that that we can increase the availability of skilled people to look after our seniors.
1: And is that where do you think it is lacking? I I think one of the candidates mentioned that last night about hiring, I think it was the NDP, hiring more people into the sector.
7: Yes, uh, you know, both parties uh, have, uh, the, the BC Liberals and the NDP have recognized we need to bring more people into the sector. The Greens haven't really recognized that yet, but I mean, you know, the their policy development will will take some time they're relatively uh, new to uh, to the legislature but i think all parties recognize the need to bring more people on and um, you know it is a, an attractive career um, people that work in the sector semi so are passionate mm-hmm. uh, they they are full of love and they are the real healthcare heroes when you look at the impact of covid-19 and uh, you know i think we could do more to recognize how important they've been at the front lines of healthcare
1: all right terry thank you for your time Thanks, Simi. That's Terry Lake, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association, taking a look at all three party campaign platforms and where they stand on the issue of senior care. Good, he said, you know, there's some good things in there, but he said what he really wanted to hear from all of them is what's going to be done about creating more spaces, creating more beds, the things that we are going to need in the years ahead. Find a way in, Simi at cknw.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
6: Is there a place for private, for-profit care in the care of our seniors? It
1: was the first question of the night from debate moderator Shachi Curl. As you just heard there, what about senior care? What about our seniors? That is the community that has been hardest hit by COVID-19, and that's where a lot of attention is being paid and will continue to be paid over the next few years. So joining us now to talk about the different parties and their positions on the subject, we're joined by the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association, Terry Lake. Terry, thanks for joining us.
7: Good morning, Simi. Good to be with you.
1: Well, are you pleased with the level of attention that this issue has been getting?
7: Absolutely. Uh, You know, I think um, COVID-19 and the impact on seniors has focused people on seniors' care, which is always a good thing because there have been know, concerns that have been raised for years, particularly around uh, health human resources and the need to have more people coming into into the sector to support seniors in care.
1: Right, because for the first time it seems like we're seeing some decently comprehensive plans, right, from all three parties in their campaign platforms.
7: Absolutely. Um, Both the NDP and the BC Liberals have extensive uh, platform commitments to seniors care. I would say the the Green Party is uh, lacking a little bit there and Seems to be focused on, uh, you know, getting rid of uh, private, uh, uh, for-profit uh, seniors care, and, and you know, I would argue there's very little evidence to support that. Although I did think that uh, Sonia backed away a little bit from that last night and said, you know, they would be transitioning over time because, um, you know, the mix that we have in BC has, has proven. Uh, to be um, a good mix, and uh, by all accounts, including the Canadian Medical Association, has dealt very well with the COVID-19 impact.
1: All right, well, let's run through some of the provinces there, you, or uh, the platforms there. You mentioned the Green Party. Uh, if we go to the NDP platform, they're talking about a silver alert system. They're talking about increasing public funding for home care and enforcing care standards in private homes. How do you think that that would work? Is that something that is necessary?
7: It's necessary no matter what the ownership model is. We need to ensure that there's transparency, that there's accountability no matter if we're dealing with the health authority run uh, uh, assisted living and long-term care or whether it's not-for-profit or or for-profit. It's critical that particularly where public dollars are used to support seniors in care that uh, the money go to to care and uh, that we have uh, a a transparent, um, accountable system in place and Uh, You know, they've been working towards that. I mean, back in the former government, uh, certainly there were mechanisms in place that have been improved and uh, will continue to be improved.
1: Let's talk about the BC Liberal platform then that also addresses this. They're talking about a new tax credit of up to $7,000 a year for seniors to remain in their homes, but also a five-year, $1 billion long-term care home plan to upgrade some of those long-term care homes and assisted living residences. How badly is that money needed?
7: Well, both the NDP and the BC Liberals have committed uh, sizable amounts to replacement of the older facilities. And these are mostly in health authority owned and operated facilities where we see uh, more uh, frequent uh, use of multi-bed rooms. And we know that these rooms are, first of all, they're You lack privacy, but it's very difficult uh, to have the level of cleaning needed uh, to ensure that we don't have spread of infectious diseases. So that would go a long way to replacing the old stock, but neither of the plans really looks forward to the long-term needs and the the additional beds that we're going to need as our population ages. So a little disappointed that uh, none of the parties have really talked about looking at how many more beds we're going to need over the next 5, 10, 15 years how many beds are we going to need? Well, the population uh, in BC that is over 65 now outpaces uh, those under 16. And uh, over the next uh, five to 10 years, we're going to need uh, tens of thousands of new long-term care spaces. And, And perhaps that's A mix of assisted living and long-term care, which is probably why we need to look at, you know, have a comprehensive look at seniors' care and decide what the optimum model is and where to best put resources.
1: Now, given the impact of COVID nineteen in this particular sector, do you think that some of the changes in long-term care are here to stay?
7: Yes, I think so. Uh, You know, the single-site order has uh, certainly helped, although it has created some pressures uh, for not just uh, private operators, but for health authorities as well, because a casual pool of employees, uh, some people only want to work part-time, and a casual pool helps to replace uh, people that are off sick. Uh, so the overtime costs, uh, Sydney and the sector have gone through the roof, and that is certainly a real cost for, for health authorities and for uh, private providers, whether they're not-for-profit or for-profit. Uh, but certainly uh, increasing wages with the uh, wage leveling uh, you know is something we need to do. But even more than that, we need to uh, bring people into the sector to make this an attractive career for people uh, so that we can increase the availability of skilled people to look after our seniors.
1: And is that where do you think it is lacking? I I think one of the candidates mentioned that last night about hiring, I think it was the NDP, hiring more people into the sector.
7: Yes. uh, You know, both parties uh, have, uh, the, the BC Liberals and the NDP have recognized we need to bring more people into the sector. The Greens haven't really recognized that yet, but I mean, you know, the, their policy development will will take some time they're relatively uh, new to uh, to the legislature but i think all parties recognize the need to bring more people on and um, you know it is a, an attractive career um, people that work in the sector semi so are passionate mm-hmm. uh, they they're full of love and they are the real healthcare heroes when you look at the impact of covid-19 and uh, you know i think we could do more to recognize how important they've been at the front lines of healthcare
1: all right terry thank you for your time Thanks, Simi. That's Terry Lake, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association, taking a look at all three party campaign platforms and where they stand on the issue of senior care. Good, he said, you know, there's some good things in there, but he said what he really wanted to hear from all of them is what's going to be done about creating more spaces, creating more beds, the things that we are going to need in the years ahead. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: So I got a new phone six weeks ago and it's already out of date. It was actually out of date when I bought it because let's face it, I did not buy the top of the line model. They are so expensive. And then along comes this Apple announcement, their special event launch that they had this week, and it includes a new iPhone 12 that can operate on those 5G networks that we have been hearing so much about. So what is so special about this slate of new products that was unveiled by Apple Let's find out. Mike Agarbo joins us now, tech expert, host of Get Connected. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. So did you love it so much that you have to have one?
8: <laughs> well, I'm a, an Uber nerd, so yes, I, I'm going to get one. There's no question. But uh, yeah, these uh, these rollouts keep happening fast and furious. So yeah, don't worry about being out of date. That just happens. In a few months, we'll be out of date again.
1: <laughs> okay, so what is so special about these iPhone 12s?
8: I think the big feature is uh, Apple's finally dipping their toes into the 5G side of uh, cellular. So, uh, you know, have been hearing a lot of announcements from Rogers, Telus, and Bell, how they're rolling out their 5G networks. Uh, they're getting better and better. They're still not kind of everywhere yet, but the, the dream is that you're going to get much faster speeds, uh, you know, up to 10 times faster than you're getting now. Uh, a big feature, too, is uh, lower latency. So that means, like, when you click a link for a web page on your browser or on your phone, It will just load, like, instantaneously. It won't wait a second uh, or two. So, Hmm. uh, you know, there are 5G networks out there right now, um, but most people wouldn't notice a huge difference right out of the gate. It'll start picking up speed over the next year or two as they get more coverage.
1: So is there anything else that makes these better? Like, I don't know how much better these cameras can get. They're already pretty (laughs) fancy.
8: (laughs) The cameras are getting pretty good, I have to say. You know, uh, Apple announced a few different models, Uh, the 12, uh, the 12 mini, which are kind of the same specs, but just different size screens. Uh, and now the 12 pros, uh, which has some pretty impressive uh, features uh, in them. Uh, the night modes have gotten uh, dramatically better once again. I didn't think they could get better, but they, uh, they have. Uh, and they've really upped the game when it comes to the video. So you're able to take some really professional quality uh, video uh, now. So 4K video, 60 frames a second. Uh, and also Dolby Vision HDR. All the video nuts will know what that means. So uh, if you know what it means, then you probably want one of these <laughs> phones. But a couple other features that found, I found appealing, uh, they've got a MagSafe feature. So they've kind of built a, a magnet into the back of the phones now. And this is going to enable a whole bunch of new accessories and cases. So a lot of people are wireless charging. Uh, but sometimes when you're trying to put it on that wireless charger, it just doesn't fit perfectly. Well, yes. with the new magnet now, it'll just instantly click onto those chargers. Apple also showed off a few really cool cases, uh, a little wallet case that just kind of snaps on the back magnetically, which was kind of uh, exciting. Uh, Another huge feature for me, though, is uh, the ceramic shield, and that's what they're calling it. It makes the the iPhone four times more drop-proof, so it's got the toughest glass out of any smartphone in the market now.
1: Okay, that's actually a huge thing. I've got a couple people in my family who are prone to drop things, right? Slippery fingers. So that would be big. But it doesn't sound, these don't sound like tweaks, Mike. They don't sound like anything that was like huge. Uh,
8: They have a new design for the phone as well. I know that's not a big uh, tweak. It almost reminds me of the old iPhone 4 uh, style of uh, phone. Really? the larger rectangular edges. Yeah, Uh, I like it. Uh, I like it a lot. Uh, but yeah, you know, should you upgrade? Good question. You know, if you've got a, a 10 uh, or older and you're really into things like photography, yeah, this might be a phone that you want to have a look at. If you've got one of the newer 11 or the 11 Pros, maybe you might wait for the 13 or the 14.
1: Oh, 10 or older. That's cute. Do you know up, <laughs> up until 6 not, weeks not ago. Like you your pulse, up until 6 weeks ago, I had an iPhone 6. Okay. So Oh
8: my god. I know. Yes. I know. A I, lot of people have that. A lot of people have those, but they're great.
1: They were really good. I felt at that time I felt really good I could have and I've had it for I had it for years. I only recently upgraded to an 11 and I have to admit it it was a big deal. That that leap was a big one.
8: Yeah, but I bet, you know, like, the camera is just dramatically oh. better than the 6 on okay. that one. Especially for nighttime shots before, you're probably using the flash all the time. You probably hardly ever use the flash anymore, and it takes fantastic photos.
1: That is so true. Okay, well, anything else other than phones that they announced? I know they did a, a smaller version of their kind of home speaker, right?
8: Yeah, they uh, came out with the HomePod Mini. So this is going to be going for about 130 Canadian, which is a dramatic uh, price increase from uh, right. their original HomePod, which is like, almost $400 uh, Canadian. So I think they're trying to get uh, a little more uh, market share going after right. like the the Google line of the, uh, the Amazon Alexa stuff, but they've got a long way to go there. Those guys have you know got tens of millions of their speakers
2: no
1: doubt. Uh,
8: throughout North America and HomePod's just not there yet.
1: All right, Mike, thank you. Thank you. Mike Eggerbo, tech expert and host of Get Connected.